I want to encourage you as you go through your week, and I assume that you are spending time alone with the Lord. And I know that some of you, he will prompt to share a verse or a prayer or a witness, whatever. I want you to feel that in this place it's safe to do that and it's safe to do that which God is calling you to do. And so I want you to look to this time as a time when you can be obedient to the Spirit's leading and that you can look to this time to take that which God has powerfully taught you and share it with others. Not all of our experiences are like that. Some of them are just for us. But some of those things that the Holy Spirit is impressing upon you in your life are not meant for you alone. They are meant for the church. They are meant for the body. And I want to encourage you, whether it is a prayer, whether it is a scripture, whether it is a witness, to not be afraid, to move upon to act upon the moving of the Holy Spirit. It won't be weird. It will feel like the most natural thing in the world. And there will be a confirmation in your spirit as you do it. And there will be a confirmation from those in this church who will come up to you afterwards and say, that is exactly what God needed me to know today. We are studying the book of Acts, and we've come to Acts 13. And <clears throat> today, I'm going to be a little bit like Lori Weeks. <laughs> That's very presumptuous of me, because I've got half the IQ of Lori Weeks. <laughs> But I'm going to be a professor today, and you are going to be my students. Now you're nervous, because I'm actually going to ask you some questions. I'm going to ask you to respond, all right? And so, um, not, not the whole time, but uh, I am going to ask some of you, or anyone who feels like they have the right answer to respond. And uh, so, be prepared. Here it comes. Today's lesson, uh, I've entitled Paul's Gospel Rhetoric. And uh, I know that probably because we are totally bombarded by rhetoric, um, rhetoric sort of has been kind of given sort of a, a bad name. But in fact, rhetoric is, is really a neutral thing. And rhetoric is defined in this way. The art of effective or persuasive speaking or writing. Rhetoric. The art of effective or persuasive speaking or writing. I remember when I was in college, one of my favorite courses was rhetorical writing. And it was a course in which they taught us a bunch of methodologies of how you could present an argument in a very persuasive way. And so when I read this speech, and it's not a writing, it's a speech that Paul gives in a place 
probably, you know, today it's Turkey, um, in a synagogue in Turkey, I think to myself, he would get an A plus in this course on rhetorical speaking because he writes in such a persuasive way in this uh, speech that we're going to consider today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to find out what rhetorical speaking is really quickly, a little lesson for you, and then I'm going to read his speech, and then you are going to identify the different ways in which he was effective in being rhetorical. Sounds, it sounds more complicated than it actually will be. But rhetorical speaking, there's, 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 there's a methodology to being persuasive in the way you speak. One of them is that we need to know our audience. And that's pretty straightforward because we know that we speak to children differently than we do to adults, normally. Um, we, we would not speak to a new Canadian, for instance, perhaps as we would to a Canadian because we wouldn't use a lot of the Canadian jargon that we, uh, that we, that we use with Canadians with new Canadians. Um, we, 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 we don't even talk to urban people the same way that we talk to rural people because there's a different sort of language. Uh, so you need to know who your audience is. Secondly, you need to know what you're speaking about. What am I speaking about? Content. What is my content? This is the issue with people that you might hear speak, might be a pastor or a politician or some other sort of speaker, and, and you leave and you're thinking, well, what, what was that about? But that's a problem, right? So each day when I prepare my lessons for you folks, I'm thinking of the big idea. What is the big idea? What is the essential lesson or message that, that I'm trying to communicate to you? And so what am I speaking about? Next is, what is my purpose? I'm not just speaking to share information. I'm trying to convince you of something if I'm doing it rhetorically. I'm trying to convince you of something. All right, so what is my purpose? And then finally, how will I position myself in relation to the audience, purpose, and content, which really is about my whole approach. What will be my approach in trying to connect with my audience so that I can persuade them? Am I going to use language that people in the audience can specifically relate to? Am I going to use humor or sarcasm? You know, some of you probably watch Rick Mercer on Tuesday evenings, and he has a rant, he calls it. All right, and that's just an effective, persuasive way. He just rants. Like, it's unfiltered. It's just sort of like, you know, in your face. All right? And it's an effective and persuasive way of communicating. He's trying to convince you of his point of view on things. You might agree or disagree, but he's very good at uh, his rant. And so, that is rhetorical speaking. It's the same as rhetorical writing. I remember when I was in college, my rhetorical writing paper, we had to write different papers based on different methods of how to be rhetorical. And I remember one that I really enjoyed was that I compared, one of them was compare and contrast. One of them was a, a, a paper that I wrote rhetorically trying to convince the reader that the Japanese internment in Canada was not unlike the Jewish concentration camps in uh, Germany. And, you know, 
I was naive because actually there's quite a difference. But at the same time, I was trying to make sure that people understood that, you know, really atrocious, inhumane, and unjust things happened in Canada, just as well as in Germany, when we uh, essentially put Japanese people in, in jail, concentration camps. Look it up, it's in history. So, now we're going to read Acts 13, 13 to 41. We're going to read Paul's rhetorical gospel. And what I want you to do, and actually I've never done this before, but we do actually have Bibles uh, provided. And if you want to follow along in the Bible in front of you, you just look up Acts 13. And uh, you might want that. In a sense, you can sort of think of the quiz that's coming afterwards as an open book quiz. I used to love those. Open book quiz. I used to think, well, I don't need to know anything. I got my book. Doesn't work that way. I found that. I'm going to read Acts 13, verses 13 to 41. The questions that I'm going to have for you, I will tell you, start off easy and get harder for you. All right? So here we go. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. And from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. That was kind of a custom in those days. If there was a visiting rabbi who came into your synagogue, you would uh, ask them if they had something they wanted to say. And so standing up, Paul, who was a rabbi of all rabbis, uh, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. While mighty power, with mighty power, he led them out of that country. And for about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. <laughs> Interesting. He endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven uh, nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. Remember Cole's notes in high school? That there is Cole's notes version of Israeli history. (laughs) 450 years in two sentences. (laughs) After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man, that's David, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy uh, to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, 
They fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that you... Or take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. That's the end of the reading. So, raising hands still done, Lori, in class? They ring? Raise hands, good. I thought they tweeted or something. I wouldn't doubt it. All right, so here's the questions again. Uh, who is Paul's audience? Remember, raise your hand. No yelling at me. Anybody? Yes, Judy. The people of Israel. The people of Israel. And some converts, so Jewish people, and some Gentiles who've been converted to Judaism. Good answer. What is he speaking about? Well, there's a lot there, but can we just make it concise? What is he talking about here? What's the subject? What's his content? Charlie? How, G how Jesus fulfilled what was prophesied by the prophets. Very good, Charlie. What, how Jesus prophesied, or how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. Exactly. What is his purpose? What's, what was he trying to convince them of? What's the big idea of his sermon? I'll tell you one thing. They got more than they were asking for. Tony. Yeah. Uh, so that they wouldn't miss Jesus. Right. So that they wouldn't miss Jesus um, because Jesus was their Messiah. Right? They've been looking for a Messiah. They've been anticipating a Messiah. But Paul wants them to know, don't miss Jesus. He's the guy. He's the one you've been waiting for. Now, this one's worth bonus points. <laughs> bonus marks. Probably don't do that anymore. How did he position himself in relation to his audience, purpose, and content? What was his approach in other? Anybody? 
This is a zinger. As one of them, fellow yeah. Israelites. Yeah. He speaks to them as an Israelite and what his mode of operation is going to be and what he's going to employ is their very own scripture. You accept this word as from God. I'm going to prove to you that the word that you accept as true as from God points to Jesus as the Messiah. Alright? So, he knows he's talking to Jews or converts to Judaism. He wants to help them understand how the Old Testament points to Jesus. And he wants them to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. And so what he's going to do is he's going to use their very own scriptures to convince them. It's like talking jock jargon to a bunch of athletes, right? If you don't talk like a jock or like an athlete to athletes, they might not get it, quite frankly, right? And so he's speaking to the people from their experience, what they know, what they've already accepted as true and that. All right, good. So let's just remind us of who the Messiah is. The Messiah is the promised deliverer of the Jewish nation prophesied in the Hebrew Bible. The people of Israel had no problem with the concept of Messiah. They believed that there was a deliverer coming. The issue that Paul is confronting is that Jesus has shown up and they didn't see him as the Messiah. They rejected him. They didn't see him as the promised Messiah. And this is because of the term deliverer. You see, they thought deliverer meant an earthly king-type person or warrior who would overthrow all of the occupiers of Israel, kick out the Romans, <laughs> and anybody else who wanted to rule over Jerusalem and over Israel, and, and just get rid of them all. That was their deliverer. What they didn't see was that the Old Testament scriptures, and this is his strategy, I'm going to use those scriptures to prove to you that the deliverer is not just a deliverer in the earthly terms. He's a spiritual deliverer. And the, what he's going to deliver you from is not the Romans, but from sin and death and Satan. So there was a lot of persuasion required here because they were set in their belief that the Messiah was going to be an earthly deliverer king and that's why they got rid of Jesus because Jesus was like this guy who refused to be a king. He refused to be that kind of deliverer because that's not what the Messiah meant. And so Paul goes about doing this. And so I'm going to take you really quickly through what he said that confirms Old Testament scripture. First of all, he points to Jesus' lineage. He said, from this man's descendant, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus because the Israelites already believed that the Messiah would be from the line of King David. He would be a son of David. And so, 
There's all kinds of scriptures in the Old Testament that point to the fact that the Messiah would be from the line of David. Here's 2 Samuel. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, now some of you might say, well, that disqualifies Jesus right away because he didn't commit iniquity. But he took upon himself our iniquity. And I would suggest that doesn't disqualify this verse. He took upon himself my iniquity. So when he commits iniquity, now look, look what happens. I will discipline him with the rod of men. Did that happen to Jesus? With the stripes of the son of men. Was he, was he uh, hit with whips? Yes. He bore stripes for us. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you before. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so Jesus, or Sir Paul, in trying to convince these Jews in Turkey that Jesus is the Messiah, says that his lineage was from David. And when you look at the genealogy that presented by in the Gospels, David is in them. Jesus came from David. All right, the next one. He refers to John the Baptist. The other thing that the Jews believed was that the, the Messiah would have a forerunner, someone who would come ahead and sort of prepare the landscape for the Messiah. And so you don't have to look very far in Scripture in the Old Testament, like Malachi 3.1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even, in the, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. And then in Isaiah, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. You, you hear that song in the Messiah talking about Jesus Christ. The voice of him who crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the deserts a kingdom for our God. So Paul says to them that John the Baptist is that forerunner. But don't mistake him for the Messiah because he says, this is what Paul says in verse 25 of your text, I'm not, I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me. Very clearly, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus Christ and he said he's the Messiah. Very clearly. It would be um, very clear. He was very clear about the fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah and that he was the forerunner. You see, some of the people thought John the Baptist was the Messiah. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm the forerunner. You remember you guys? There's going to be somebody who comes ahead of the Messiah. That's me. That guy there, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus that's the Messiah. So Paul said Jesus had David's lip, came from David, that John the Baptist clearly pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, and that we know that there was going to be a forerunner. The next thing, Paul refers to Jesus' rejection. Now this is where 
Paul is having to now change their paradigm. They had no problem that the son that Messiah was going to be the son of David, son of David. No problem with that. Okay? They had no problem with the fact that he was going to have a forerunner, someone who would go ahead of him and make way, make the path straight. But now you're getting into stuff that they were not too happy about. Because Paul is having to tell them, you guys missed this. You missed it, and it's really important. And this is it. That you rejected the Messiah. Nobody wants to be told they're wrong, right? And so, Jesus was rejected. We find in Isaiah 53.3, which even today is not accepted by Jews as messianic. Okay? They, they, a Jew would not say that Isaiah 53, which is so, I mean, it's like so clearly about Jesus. <laughs> Isaiah 53, read it. You're like, what? Isaiah 53, which is so much about Jesus. You can't, you can't deny it. The Jewish people will tell you it is not about the Messiah. All right? Well, Paul says, the fact that you rejected Jesus is just proof that he was the Messiah. It says here, Paul said, the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets. In condemning Jesus, they fulfilled the words of the very prophets that you listen to day in and day out in the synagogue. And one of those passages that they didn't accept about being the Messiah or about the Messiah was Isaiah 53. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we, and we esteemed him not. So Paul is saying to these Jews in the synagogue, Jesus was rejected. And guess what? Your very own scriptures, my scriptures, Paul says, because he was a Jew of all Jews, my scriptures say that the Messiah was going to be rejected. Look it, it's right there, Isaiah 53. He's rejected. More proof that Jesus was the Messiah that you have been waiting for. Next, Jesus was crucified. He says in verse 29 of what we read, When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. When they carried out all that was written about him. Written when? Written by the prophets in the Old Testament. The stuff they did to Jesus on the day of his crucifixion was predicted hundreds and hundreds of years before. The actual facts of what they did to him, of his pierced hands and feet, which, get this, would have made no sense when it was written because when you got rid of somebody in Israel, you stoned them to death. But if he gets rid of somebody in the Roman Empire, you crucify him. Look what the scripture says about him in verse of Psalm 22. 
My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. Sound familiar to the situation that Jesus went through? An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. That was written by David hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was crucified. People, Paul says, your own scriptures speak of Jesus being the Messiah that you have long awaited for. Do you see how persuasive Paul is? Amazing. A plus on this paper. I'd give him an A plus. <laughs> Rhetorical writings. 101. A plus. And then he goes on. And then he starts to insert some scriptures from the Old Testament in, the ver in his very words. He starts to quote Old Testament scriptures. And these Old Testament scriptures are unique because they are all about the resurrection. Now you are way off base, Paul, because the Messiah has, first of all, not going to die, and he's not going to be resurrected. But Paul says, no, look at your scriptures. Look what the scripture says about your Messiah. Your Messiah is actually going to be raised from the grave. So he points to their scriptures. He, he quotes Psalm 2-7, which was accepted as a messianic a messianic. Um, Psalm by the people of Israel about the Messiah. And he says, you are my son, today I have forgotten you. Well, that's a hard one to understand, and it needs some explanation, because you need to look at the Hebrew. But in that term, begotten, it doesn't mean, like some people would say, heretically, in this day and age, that begotten means created. Begotten means brought forth. And so he's, Paul is very clear, and he does this actually several times in his letters. He uses that very phrase, Jesus was begotten by the Father, to prove that he was raised from the grave. And so he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he goes on, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. What was that blessing? That your kingdom would endure forever. That you will reign forever. And then he goes on in his passage in Acts 13, he says, well, we all know Jesus or David died and his body suffered decay. So then he goes on to this next verse in Psalm 16, you will never let your Holy One see decay. Their prophet, their, their Messiah was not to see decay. Jesus did not see decay. <laughs> and he's pointing to them, he's saying, look at your very own scriptures say that the Messiah was going to be resurrected. And nobody has been resurrected but Jesus Christ. You see what he's doing? Using their very own scriptures to prove that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecies. And then he pivots his rhetorical speech to the implications of Jesus being the Messiah. And he wants to reframe in their mind because this is a huge paradigm shift. The Messiah is going to be a deliverer who will deliver us from whoever is picking on us at the time. 
And he will create a nation that will last forever and will be a light to the world. That's the paradigm they were stuck in. That's the paradigm that ex- that forced them to exclude all of these passages that Paul, that Paul is putting in front of them. It was the paradigm which they used to disqualify scriptures that they needed to not disqualify that spoke about Jesus Christ. But from that paradigm they did, they excluded it. Because they just wanted to accept scriptures that spoke about a Messiah who would deliver them from an earthly bondage. Right? And so, he needs to get them into a new paradigm. He needs to switch their minds. He needs to get them to understand that the deliverer is not delivering you from an earthly king, but delivering you from far something far more important. From sin, from death, from Satan. That's what the Messiah was always intended to do. Scripture is clear, but because you were in a paradigm of your own, you excluded all the scriptures that spoke about it. And so in order to do that, he says, therefore, therefore, right? That's the word you use when you've made a point and now you want to wrap it up and talk about implications. The implications, therefore, my friends, are these. I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from sin. This is a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. And we've talked about this before. There is no, no number of animals that could be sacrificed that would take away the sins of humanity. It was only the sacrifice of a perfect human being who was perfect in every way, the perfect and holy Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And so, Jesus, so Paul is saying, you've been in this paradigm, but the deliverer is not the deliverer of, a, 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 of an earthly king. The deliverer is the deliverer who is going to free you from sins. And that's what Jesus claimed to do, and that's what Jesus did do. And then he closes with a warning. Once again, from their scriptures, and he says, Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? You wouldn't believe it, and you haven't, quite frankly. I'm going to do something, so don't be a scoffer and perish. Believe and have life. That's from Habakkuk, their passage. The warning is not to reject God's plan of salvation, explaining that it exceeded their expectations of what the Messiah would be. A plus. Rhetorical speech, amazing. What What Paul did through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to convince people Now, next week, we're going to find out how they responded, (laughs) which is telling. It's telling, and it's a message for us. But this morning, I want to conclude with this. Is there anything in this lesson for me? (laughs) After all, you're not the audience, right? (laughs) You're not a Jew. 
You're living in 2017. You're not living 2,000 years ago, and you're not in Turkey. Some of you are turkeys, but you're not living in Turkey. All right? Amen. So is there something in this for me? You are not the audience. And you have always known Jesus to be the Messiah because you grew up Christian. So what's this got to do with us? Well, we have been focusing upon the preeminence, the importance, the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what's in it for us this morning. Because the high point of Paul's speech is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. With it, nothing he said really has any value. It was the resurrection of the Messiah that was to prove the point that he was trying to make. Look what Timothy Keller says. And this is why it's relevant to us. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on what everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And so you and I have to decide, did Jesus rise from the grave? If he did, you better well believe everything he said because nobody else in the world has ever done that. And what he said was that he came to be your savior. He came to set you free from the sins that you are captive to, held captive to. And so, the resurrection is so, so very, very important. All right. The first thing I want you to know is this. And you've got to back up a slide now. Probably can. The implications. The resurrection confirms the absolute truth of the gospel. Right? It's proof positive that what Jesus came to do, he did. Secondly, it guarantees our salvation. If he could die as a lamb, taking upon himself all of our sin, if he could die, taking upon himself all of our sin, and he could rise again, he could be resurrected, it proves that what he came to do, he did, and you are saved. You are free from your sin. Sin has been conquered on your behalf. And so, your salvation is guaranteed. There's a good website that I would recommend to you called Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. CARM, it's called. And they write this. Jesus rose from the dead in the very same physical body in which he died. This resurrected physical body was a glorified spiritual body. The spiritual body is not merely a spirit. The spiritual body is the resurrected, glorified physical body. Now, why is this relevant? It's relevant because what Christ did by dying and rising again, and rising with a physical body that you could touch. He ate, you know, 
He breathed. Uh, he did everything that proves that he had a physical body. If Jesus, in fact, did that, he reversed all of the effects of sin. He undid what sin had done. Sin corrupted the physical body. Killed it, ultimately. And so, the resurrection of Jesus proves that Christ undoes everything that sin did. And he rose with a physical body. And then finally, the resurrection certifies our future. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, I read it earlier, For as Adam all dies, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. You see, Christ is the firstfruit. We too will have a glorified body with him. We too will be resurrected. And so we have a certain future. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was so central to Paul's lesson to a different audience at a different time, granted, is relevant to us today because it is the centerpiece of what we believe in. It confirms the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It guarantees our salvation and it certifies our future. We too will live for eternity with glorified bodies because Jesus undid all of the corrosive effects of sin. I don't know. For me, that's an encouragement. Hopefully it is for you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that Paul was brave and even though he had such a radical change in his paradigm, because he thought just like those people he was talking to at one time. And then he understood, into, came into an understanding of who the Messiah really was. I thank you, Lord, that you did this remarkable work in his life so that he could then go talk to other Jews and help them to understand that your plan was greater than making a great nation state. Your plan was reversing the effects of sin. Lord, thank you for this wonderful plan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great day.